Teaching Journey Podcast acknowledges the traditional custodian of the country and pay our respects to the elders past and emerging and recognizes their continuing connections to the land, waterways and community. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hi all, I'm Dee, and you are listening to Teaching Journey Podcast Connecting Through Early Education, Episode 14. In this episode, I sat down with Jessica Steins, founder of Kuru Curriculum. Jessica has done a lot of advocacy work for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and have brought a lot of cultural awareness and education on respectfully embedding First Nation perspectives, specifically in early child education sector. In our recording, Jessica spoke about the importance of knowing the framework and legislative well when we are advocating for social justice and children's rights by using them to help to frame what we do and the impacts we have to our practices. She talks about the comfort in the discomfort of questioning our practices. Are we supporting children's individual identity? How are we doing it? Are the children being marginalized, excluded or silenced? And how are we reflecting into our practices? If you have been listening to our podcast so far, the people who I've interviewed, who have been a driving change within the sector, like Jessica, have mentioned that using the framework, regulation and legislative documents, including the Convention Rights of the Child and both VIT and ECA Code of Ethics, using them as tools to question our own practices, as well as guided documents to support our advocacy work, especially when we are engaging in difficult conversations with colleagues or management. And all of these change setters within the sector who we have had on the podcast so far, they all have been met with resistance and frustrations. I know that the journey of advocacy is never always a smooth one. As Desmond Tutu, a human rights activist said, resistance is a reminder that our advocacy work is making waves and with perseverance, we can turn ripples into a powerful tide of change. So I hope that by listening into this episode, you are inspired by Jessica's tips on creating the ripple and continuing your passionate advocacy work within the sector. Because know that your significant ripple is a part of a tidal wave of change in our early child sector. So here it is, episode 14 with Jessica Staines. Enjoy. Please see this episode show note for the link to Kuri Curriculum website. And through the website, you can find Kuri Curriculum professional development, podcasts, resources, blogs, and a link to their educated community Facebook page. Hi everyone, I would like to start today's recording with acknowledging the traditional owners of the Kulin Nations on the Bulebeki land in Warunjuri country where I am today. Um, Jess, which country you are currently on at the moment? I'm on Gadigal country in Sydney. Thank you. Um, and just to introduce you, uh, you are one of our super special guests. I'm really excited to have you here and you're a celebrity in my eyes. I've been to your uh, PD sessions uh, many years ago, um, but you're Jessica Steins and you're a Wurundjeri woman and uh, have founded Kukuri Curriculum, providing professional development programs and workshops for educators supporting and guiding them in the inclusion of Aboriginal perspective in early childhood. Um, and Jess, you've done a lot of advocacy work in early childhood. You've also written several journals and have published a book called Educator Yarn. 
uh, and you're also a collaborator and advisor for Play School, uh, where we're seeing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and voices are represented in mainstream media, which is fantastic. Um, you also have a partnership with Peter Shem Tef, running the Kuri Curriculum Christmas Drive, supporting Aboriginal families every year. And in 2021, you became part of the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies as part of the advisory committee, where you support the development of resources, programs that support Aboriginal children and families in the early years. So not only you're advocating for children in the early years sector, but you're also advocating for Aboriginal people and children in the community. So, you know, um, and the whole purpose of this podcast is to really unpack your journey. And I'm interested to know that for you, listening to all of that achievement, um, and I'm sure there's many more um, that I've not mentioned. They're lengthy and they're outstanding resume. Uh, I'm interested to hear what you think when you hear all of that that you've accomplished. <laughs> um, well, I think, I don't know. I don't know what I think, to be honest. It's, um, it's a lot of achievements so far, a long period of time, but I don't really view them necessarily as achievements more so um i'm excited to see the change that is happening more so within our profession and within early childhood so even with things like play school to see the way that they're really looking to include culture in every um topic that they that they produce a series on rather than just having designated series so to see that shift in mindset of how we go about inclusion and aboriginal programs i think has it makes me proud because i know i've had a part to play in that but it's amazing to see the shift that's happened in the last five or so years yeah most definitely and so let's talk about when you started or begin in early child sector when was that and how did that look like uh, for you yeah i like i was born into early childhood so my mum um is an early childhood teacher as well and she was the director at um at Inner West Council Services near where we live and then went on to teaching child studies at Petersham TAFE, which is why we've got that partnership with them. Okay. So I spent a lot of time um, sort of going in her footsteps, I suppose, and, you know, I was always in early learning services as a child and all of our family friends were early childhood educators, so it was a very natural progression. Um, I started working in um, our profession when I was a teenager um, as soon as I left school and yeah so it was very natural for me so that's how I sort of began um, and that was back when there was no early years learning framework and um, you didn't have to have a qualification we were the untrained childcare assistants so that was the beginning of my career yeah and what was that look like for you being, um, you know, uh, an Aboriginal person looking into, you know, the systems and the curriculum that was um, in practice? How did that make you feel? And what were your thoughts around, you know, um, I guess even acknowledging, you know, Aboriginal perspectives or in early years? Hmm. Um. Well, as I mentioned, I think I was like 16 or something when I started working in early childhood. So knowing about your culture and knowing how to put that into an early learning context it was two separate things for me. So really understanding the importance of my own cultural identity, um, which comes from my father's side of the family, our cultural background is Wiradjuri, and then thinking about 
what are some meaningful ways that we could celebrate that and share that with children that um, I was educating at the time. I was really lucky. I began working um, with Ashfield Infants Home and with Inner West Council um, and both are really great organisations who ad have always advocated for inclusion. Um, and as I mentioned, this is before the Early Years Learning Framework was around. Um, and so there was a very basic understanding of how we could go about including Aboriginal perspectives in our program um, beyond just, you know, NAIDOC week and those sort of more stereotypical experiences of dot painting and crafting cardboard boomerangs and listening to dreaming stories and so forth. But I was really lucky that the people, the educators that I was surrounded by um, were really passionate about both social justice and inclusive practices. And they also went out of their way to mentor me in building my professional practice, which was emerging at the same time as my cultural identity. Um, and so we did some things like partnering with Aboriginal preschools that were near us where we would we would share and then continuing to do my own um, training as an early childhood educator, so becoming getting a Cert 3, then diploma, then going on and doing teaching, but then also engaging with professional development. So where it started was very basic place, but um, I, I think I was just in a fortunate situation that the people around me were were keen to to mentor and also grow their own pedagogy and practice alongside me at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And that makes a huge difference because it sounds that you were also empowered and that you embrace your own culture as well. Like, oh, you know, this is great that you feel that sense of belonging. Uh, and that's wonderful to hear. And I think uh, that's also a really important message where, you know, be it whatever culture you're from, um, being included and accepted um, it's one of the fundamental things uh, in, in building that teaching identity as well. So that's great. And in terms of, you know, the challenges that you had at the very start as a teacher, um, and you spoke about building that identity, what were the challenges that you had? I think that the challenges were that there was no roadmap. There was mm -hmm. no real um, tangible examples that I was aware of at the time of what this looked like in mainstream early learning services. Um, there was no principles, there were no practices, there were no outcomes, there, there was none of that. So it was very much, I think, thinking about what we thought would be meaningful and what belonging would feel like for Aboriginal children and, and families and what promoted my sense of belonging as well. So um, I guess like in terms of my cultural identity, it, it came through, you know, lots of community connections and relationships, which were then transferred over into the service that I was working at um, at the time. But I think, uh, yeah, I think the challenges were were very were many, and probably more so because not only was there nothing professionally or in a curriculum or a national in terms of a national framework or anything like that. I was also just a teenager that didn't have a lot of experience in early childhood at all or an understanding of what holistic play and development looked like. Um, so one of the things that probably started to shift that, obviously, with the introduction of the early years learning framework and getting further training for myself 
was that I, I did work casually for a lot of different organizations. So, and that sort of showed me that there was a strong willingness to include Aboriginal perspectives, but um, a lot of people were struggling, but I was able to see lots of different ways that that could happen. The shift probably came when I was about 19 or 20, I became a kinship carer and um, to a young Aboriginal girl. Um, I was also her teacher. And I began to think about really basic things of, you know, like whilst NAIDOC week and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day, that that was really important to be able to come together and get with community. I more thought at a, at a basic level of how she, her identity was being embraced and celebrated and that sense of belonging was being fostered in everyday play experiences that were based on her interests, you know. So no matter where she saw herself um, in our within the learning environment, that she could see herself reflected in those spaces and places. So um, that also started to shift the way that I approached Aboriginal programs as well. Yeah. Are you still in contact with this person, this girl? No, not at yeah, the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I wonder, like, you know, that support that you had, like, you know, that connection, uh, I can imagine, it, you know, it creates a profound impact to her uh, later down in the years. So, um, you know, what you've offered is that sense of acceptance and sense of belonging and, um, you know, allowing her to be who she is within, uh, you know, extended community. I think it's a wonderful uh, gift that you've given her. So, yeah, great. And in terms of building towards curriculum, where has that started and stemmed from and, you know, and how did that come about for you? That's where developed more principles and practices around um, what that looks like. So in my own professional practice, there are more and more educators that sort of wanted that to be shared and shown to them and given advice of what they could be doing within their own teams um, and services. And then at that point, I was working for... KU Children's Services um, in the Aboriginal programs team. And again, I was really fortunate at that time to have another really great mentor, um, Gazella Wilson, who was the manager of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander programs for KU. Um, and I think, I don't know, like really when I reflect on my journey, I think I've been fortunate to have lots of really great mentors that took the time to foster my professional identity and my growth. Um, so again, you know, through that role, I was able to travel to lots of different services and um, engage with lots of different communities um, and attend professional development opportunities like the ATSEAC SAG conference, which was um, back in the day, this is the National Snake Conference and Early Childhood Australia Reconciliation Symposiums and stuff like that. So that continued to sort of inspire inspire me and foster my professional practice and my abilities and then eventually um yeah I, I left KU and started teaching at TAFE part-time and was doing um the Curie curriculum on the side where educators would sort of through social media presence they would see the things that I was doing and ask me if I could come and do uh, an in-service for their team and do some staff training um and it just sort of grew like it it grew and grew with more educators really coming to the table wanting to know what they could be doing to support aboriginal programs and connect with their local communities um and yeah that's that's the beginning yeah. of the career curriculum and do you expect looking back do you expect uh to see yourself where you are today 
Not really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was just always sort of one foot in front of the other. Um, I, yeah, I, I really didn't think. No, I probably, if I would have guessed what I would have ended up doing, probably something in social work eventually or with special needs children. Um, when I first started, you know, at the time when I began, I was doing a lot of support work with children that were on the spectrum and I was really passionate about that <laughs> as well, um, all aspects of diversity, I suppose. So, yeah, um, no, I, I wouldn't have expected um, to be doing what I'm doing, absolutely not, but I'm, I'm glad that I am doing what I'm doing because it's something that I'm, I'm passionate about. So if you get to do what you love, um, I think you're really fortunate. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And in terms of this journey of, you know, building towards curriculum, what have you discovered about yourself? Um, I guess I've discovered that I can do things that I probably never thought mm-hmm. I had the abilities to do. So anything like, you know, something as basic as public speaking. I still remember when I did my first public workshop and we had people that were, um, that, that were coming in and, um, my mum was there helping me and I said to her, I don't think I can talk in front of these people. Like, I don't actually know what to say. Um, and I sort of had like a freak out moment and now, you know, I do things I don't even think about doing it. Um, I think I'm, I don't think I was ever a particularly very confident person when I was at school. Um, so to sort of be in like that thought leadership position where people want to listen to my ideas and my opinions and for me to be assertive and put those across in certain situations, um, those are things that I didn't really expect I would be doing or that I would have the skills or ability to do it. Um, so, yeah, I guess those are sort of both personal and professional things. But, um, yeah, I don't know. There's lots of surprising things about what I do now um, and where I would have seen myself ending up. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And in terms of uh, your teacher self, you know, the things that you have learned, business at the side, um, you know, working alongside with different perspective of how to embed a broader perspective in early years. What has that journey looked like for you um, in, in terms of your own practices? Is that something that you had to really dig deep, um, you know, because you're doing a lot of things on different sides uh, and you and you can see that all the questions that um, was asked in professional developments um, perspective that perhaps you don't consider from a non-Aboriginal person, has that really shaped in your teaching identity? Um, sorry, I'm not quite sure what you mean, like the questions I get asked during training. Yeah, like, you know, um, I guess my question is, have you been surprised by the questions from, you know, on how to embed a broader perspective? And I know that you've been, you know, well experienced and you've done professional development for so long that perhaps, you know, it's not so surprising now, but, you know, in those early days. Mm. um, I think it's not so much educators questions i think a lot of educators worry about saying the wrong thing or offending somebody if they word something incorrectly and so i always sort of feel that when educators come to one of our sessions they're there because they want to learn and they want to do better so i don't worry so much about how they ask a question i think nothing really surprises me in terms of questions around their pedagog their pedagogy and practice because we have to expect that everybody has had different 
relationships, experiences and opportunities when it comes to connecting with communities and working with Aboriginal families um, and understanding Aboriginal culture and history. So not everyone has had um, the same education, you know, like some people were, you know, did their training overseas or their schooling overseas and even, you know, here in Australia, lots of educators will say that Aboriginal culture and history wasn't taught well to them during their schooling. And so we often will find that um, one of the biggest barriers that educators have around Aboriginal programs is their own confidence, is that they they don't feel that they are knowledgeable um, enough or confident in their own understanding. Mm. And so they feel uncomfortable sharing that with children because they worry about doing the wrong thing. So we try and create an atmosphere where people feel safe to ask questions. I suppose what can be surprising to me, and it's not so much um, – like in our sessions, because in our sessions, I feel like, you know, you can connect with people and you're more relatable, but mainly online. Like, so we have like lots of online Facebook communities. Um, we have the Koori Curriculum Educator Community for Early Childhood Educators where they post um, ideas and they ask questions and um, we offer help and assistance. Occasionally we get some people in there that have some really racist art views <laughs> and sometimes that surprises me um uh, yeah about some of the the racism and bias that we encounter and i think sometimes you know people are keyboard warriors or whatever they feel safer to sort of voice that sitting behind a computer they wouldn't really voice that to your face um some of those people are trolls you know like they're not actual early childhood educators and some of those people are educators and i find that can be quite concerning when when that does happen but it's um it's a very rare occurrence but i do find yeah it still shocks me when when we encounter it i suppose um particularly around times like the 26th of january mm. where people can feel quite heated about you know um whether you know they should or shouldn't be celebrating australia day and so forth and people that are for australia day sometimes feel backed into a corner and feel like they have to, you know, vocalise their feelings and project that onto others. So we find that that can be quite an emotive time where we see lots of, um, I don't know, um, unpopular opinions being shared, to put it yeah. nicely. Mm. And and that can be so challenging in, in, in a personal way as well because, um, you know, obviously it's very uncomfortable in or not uh i'm not sure how you feel around that but like you know how do you find motivation and, and you know ability to i guess move forward from it mm. i guess like i've been i've become a more skilled mm. debater um in the sense that i don't think i i ever was a very skilled debater um at the beginning of my profession but you live and you learn and and what i try and do is when we come across um, instances like that. You know, in some cases, I block and remove people because I just sort of think I don't need to be dealing with it if they're particularly rude and aggressive or things like that. Um, occasionally, I've contacted the educators' workplace and let them know that what what, what has occurred. So even though it's done in in their personal time, it still happened in a professional forum. And some of the views um, and the way that they've been presented can be quite concerning so um particularly if this person is working with aboriginal children and families so i have done that as well yeah. and other times 
um, if I do engage in, in a backwards and forwards, I never talk about my personal feelings and beliefs about something. Like whilst we all have personal values and beliefs and feelings and ideals, you know, we have to marry that professionally. And sometimes those values align and sometimes they conflict. Um, so I always bring my point back to the code of ethics or the early years learning framework. Um, and we'll say something like, you know, like the, the code of ethics states that we need to act in the best interests of all children. And therefore I don't believe that celebrating Australia on the 26th of January is acting in the best interests of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families. So therefore I don't do it, um, in my professional practice or, you know, I'll say, you know, um, Early Childhood Australia released a statement that stated that educators shouldn't be celebrating on and around the 26th of January and they stand in solidarity with Reconciliation um, Australia. So I try and bring it back to um, our advisory bodies, our overarching frameworks. So my my practices are backed up by that and not by my, my opinion because otherwise you get into this situation where you're butting heads with people constantly and whose voice triumphs, you know? Um, is it the person that is more powerful, that has the more followers on Instagram? Is it um, the person who's the most vocal? Is it the, the teacher versus the the three? Like you get into the, the, a, a power dynamic Um and I don't think anyone ever wins with that. So, yeah, that's how I approach those situations. Yeah, definitely. And you've actually role modeled those examples very clearly that um, and also highlight that, you know, there are ways that we can advocate for children um, and, you know, be also advocating for yourself in terms of what your values and what your beliefs are. And there are people that we encounter within the profession who have different of opinions and, you know, and how do we navigate that in a very difficult position and be honest that you know these are you know these are part of your code of ethics this is part of your code of conduct and this is what is in the framework and if you're not adhering to all of that then perhaps this is not the profession for you in in a lot of ways so uh and i think the examples that you've given um i hope that you know people are listening in will be able to kind of take those away and be able to utilize those skills uh into how they advocate um, within uh, whatever the circumstances is. So, yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, and it's definitely one of the challenging part in our sector, I believe, that, you know, a lot of the things that we are doing a lot more now are shifting a lot of the traditional, you know, early education. And, you know, we're, we're reforming into, you know, putting children first and uh, including children in, you know, their voices into the curriculum. And I think a lot of the work that we do is, you know, having those pedagogical discussion around what is the best practice uh, and mm -hmm. being comfortable with having those conversations as well. So, and I feel like a lot of what we do, we encounter with, you know, having those difficult uh, conversations. So, yeah, it's, I... And I'm just wondering, like, is that something that you still find that you need to practice um, with? Or is that something that you're quite comfortable in advocating uh, in those difficult situations? I think in the role that I'm in, I can, <laughs> um, when I'm sort of working with teams, it's not it's not hard for me to, to do that because a lot of these questions and a lot of these sort of opinions that have been put forward. It's not the first time that I've heard it. It's not the first 
it's not my first rodeo, <laughs> so yeah. to speak. So I'm, I know my references in those documents. I know what I'm going to say. I know, I know how to deal with it. You know, um, I also am not then working with those people for the next seven days yeah. or weeks, you know, like I'm there to, to do a training and maybe some follow-up mentoring, but I hope that, um, and I try and encourage that culture to continue by sort of saying that whether you're talking about um, guiding children's behaviour or the emergency evacuation procedure um, or, you know, risky play and the benefits or, um, of it, those should all, all those discussions, all of your pedagogical discussions and debates should be framed around our overarching frameworks. Um because what we do in our own personal home, so if we're talking about guiding children's behaviour, what I do in my home with my children and what you do in your home with your children has no bearing on our professional practice, you know. Um, and so you, you have to sort of put it into 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 context for, for people like that, that it's not just about Aboriginal programs or social justice issues. The same approach should be taken regardless of anything that you're talking about professionally. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Um, so let's go into motivation and inspiration. Um, who inspires you and who motivates you through this journey? Uh, probably my family. So, you know, like, like my mum being an early childhood teacher really fostered me in the early stages of my career but continues to be one of the biggest advocates for the Koori curriculum and the work that, that I do. And my dad you know, culturally and the connections and so forth. So I think those two things married together sort of really, you know, has that strong foundation for me. Um, but also I've had, I mean, the people that inspire me in my teaching or all those mentors that I've had along the way and I continue to have. And I think that's been fostered, um, you know, in my career as a teacher from the very beginning. You know, I've had some really great opportunities and I feel sad for educators that haven't had that that haven't had you know senior educators sort of take them under their wing and really invest in them so there can be some directors and teachers and so forth where I sort of see that when opportunities arise they continue to take that for themselves um but these people were sort of like oh no like it, it's about continuing to build the profession's future leaders and investing um, in our education and professional development. And I think that's what really has has brought me to the place that I'm at. So, um, you know, like Gazella at KU and um, Kelly Gleason, who worked for Marrickville Council, um, which is now Inner West Council, they were, they were amazing mentors to me. And I think without either of them, um, the Curie curriculum definitely wouldn't be. Um, what sort of inspires me today is probably not necessarily like it's no individual person. Um, it would probably be more so seeing the changes and the shifts that are that are coming. But what motivates me to do the work is because I'm passionate about closing the gap um, and I'm passionate about creating equal opportunities for our kids to access quality early learning services and to eliminate some of those barriers and I'm passionate about reconciliation um, and teaching non-Indigenous kids what it means to be a good ally and that they get the education and they are, ex are exposed to First Nations peoples and communities 
um, so they grow up doing better than what people of our generation have done. Um, and so when I can start to see those changes, I mean, some of the first kids that I taught, they're like, they're 20 now, they would be, yeah, they're 20. <laughs> so, um, and some of them, you know, because my parents still live in the same area that I grew up in and that I taught in, I continue to go back to those early learning services to mentor them as well. I can see the changes that and the impact that it's had on, on their lives um, and the people that they've become, that they're really socially aware. Um, and so I can see the shift that's happened. And so that sort of continues to inspire and motivate me to do the work that I do. Yeah. And with all of the work that you do, obviously, uh, in terms of self-care, what are the steps and measures in place that you have put yourself um, to ensure that you are looking after yourself as well? Um, I probably have some pretty strong boundaries <laughs> with people. Um, and that's good. Probably, that's really yeah. hard to create boundaries. Yeah. So how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't feel like everything is my responsibility. So you know, when we get tagged in social media posts about Aboriginal stuff or the twenty sixth of January stuff or whatever it may be, um, I don't always feel the need that I have to respond and that I have to like, yeah. That I, I think I've just got better perspective <laughs> that. Um, the work that I do has an impact um, and we have lots of resources that educators will often share in those threads, but I don't feel the need to engage. And so yeah, I can switch off. Um, becoming a mum has probably taught me that more so because I want to be more present with my daughter and with my family and not spend, um, you know, all that time. Like, you know, I work and then when I finish work, I'm with my family and I don't continue to check my emails and Facebook and so forth and, and get involved in, in, in everything. Um, I have like really good people around me that, you know, if I need to, I'll debrief with them and talk to them. But I think I also just have perspective that um, a lot of the time I used to take everything quite personally because I saw people challenging opinions or if people didn't feel the same way that I did, that that was sort of a reflection on me, but I guess now that there's that separation between what I do professionally and what I do personally, um, and I'm okay with not everybody liking me. <laughs> you know, and that's, some of my some yeah. of my opinions may may not be popular. You know, in terms yeah. of particularly when I talk to people about celebrations and things like that, they're not necessarily popular opinions. But yeah. um, like I'm okay with with that. So yeah. I think it's just some. Uh, a little bit of self-care with boundaries and also just maturity of being okay and comfortable in your own skin and not really caring what people think so much about you. Yeah. yeah. And do you think this resilience is built up from curriculum, like in terms of all the work that you've done? Potentially. I mean, I've probably been challenged more than mm. the average educator, in my opinions and practices. People like to question, well, why do you do that? Why do you think that? Mm. Why do you feel that? And mm. whatever. And that's why... I've gotten better with, like, as I said, with my debating skills of how I articulate my points across instead of talking about my opinion, I talk about the framework, you know, and, um, people, you know, people can argue with it, but they're not arguing with me. They're arguing with, you know, the early years learning framework. So they can, you know, they argue all they like, but it, it is what it is, you know? So, um, I, yeah, I've just gotten better at how I form that. And because I make it less about myself and more about professional practices, it takes away from that personal feeling. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Mm. And it can be really hard because I can imagine that, you know, someone who has just started into the sector who have 
you know, a lot of passion and enthusiasm for advocating for children and, you know, and are challenged by different opinions, it can be really hard to develop that resilience uh, and that skills mm. to have those difficult conversations. So um, what are, apart from, you know, looking into your framework um, and, you know, know the, you know, the ins and outs of the illustration and be able to be aware to, to inform your practice, what are the other things that you would advise um, someone who is new into the sector? Um, I guess to continue with their professional development. Mm. So not, you know, like when you start in the profession, whether it's with a certificate three or a teaching degree, that's early childhood 101. You know, there is so much to learn and to understand. And I think continuing on with professional development, it keeps you passionate, it keeps you inspired and motivated um, into doing what you you do so continue continuing to challenge yourself and pd doesn't have to be attending conferences or watching webinars it can be reading it can be listening to podcasts um you know there's some really great you know early childhood podcasts that are available now um and prioritizing that to to challenge yourself in your thinking and really engage in critical reflection so critical reflection is a challenging thing it's not just reflecting on your day and thinking well everything went great but really thinking about how do I improve? How do I improve this? I think having a mentor is is great. Mm. And for me, um, if I was a beginner teacher, I mean, I was lucky. Like what happened to me, I, I understand that it was serendipitous that I just happened to find myself with people who were invested in me. I also see that that's not the reality for many educators that are entering the profession now. So I would be a little bit more, um, I guess, picky about where I was going to to work and ask questions about what investment they're going to make in you to continuing to foster your professional identity um, and your well-being, you know, as an educator. So um, what the conditions are like and what, yeah, what opportunities they're willing to provide for you. Um, and yeah, I would be seeking out a mentor. That would be me. Yeah, mm. most definitely. Yeah. Um, and in terms of your next journey, what does that look like? Do you have any ideas where you're going to take curriculum to and for yourself as well? Um, well, I'm 20 weeks pregnant. so Congratulations. <laughs> for, my, for myself, I'll be having two children under the age of two. So yeah. my life is is um, different at the moment. Yeah. Um, when I started the Koori curriculum, there was a lot of traveling. Like we traveled, you know, every weekend. We were traveling to a different destination all over the country um, and I loved it. And, you know, part of me still loves it and I miss it, but it's just not the reality of my life at the moment. So there are lots of things that we do virtually with Koori curriculum and we continue to build that online space. So we have lots of live and pre-recorded webinars. We have lots of online summits and we have our membership um, for educators. And the beauty of that is that when educators engage with us online, I know some people are over online because of COVID and they want face-to-face, -face, but the benefit of these online experiences is that we're able to bring together multiple voices um, because one of the things that educators will need to learn to navigate is this this issue of conflicting advice mm. and that we are diverse as first nations people we all don't think and feel the same thing so what is endorsed and is protocol in one area can be very different to the next community um so to be able to bring in diverse 
perspectives um, on a range of topics for educators to listen to those multiple voices makes it more accessible as well. So um, that's sort of our focus is to continue to build our online presence and platform um, and to amplify First Nations voices. So my voice is there, but it's not the only opinion that that matters. Um, and trying to sort of be able to bring in First Nation experts from around our country. So that's sort of what we continue to work on now for Koori Curriculum. And that's a lot. That's, yeah, yeah, a big task. Yeah, and it's wonderful to see that, you know, um, you still have that passion to continue. And, that's a, uh, and it, it sounds like you're just on the tip of the iceberg on the work that you're doing as well. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah, sorry. Definitely, no. Um, and so to finish off uh, today, uh, one advice that you would tell yourself, your beginning teacher self, what would that be? Ah. Uh, <laughs> when you started off when you're 16, 17, 18. Yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, I would probably say that probably some of the most challenging experiences will be some of the best learning experiences that you'll have. Um, I think about educators that challenged me and practices that challenged me, um, even situations I definitely didn't enjoy or like, but I think it was those experiences and those challenges that really provoked me to critically reflect and they brought about the best, some of the best learning, you know, that probably changed my pedagogy and practice. So um, I think, you know, like look for the silver lining in things, I suppose. And um, I know I've listened to a few of your, your other podcasts, but that idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable, I think is pretty important when it comes to doing like social justice work and dealing with anti-bias practices and principles, right, is that, it's not comfortable, you know, dealing with racism and bias and discrimination, um, which is which is a big aspect of Aboriginal programs, is not necessarily something that's meant to be easy or enjoyable or fun. Um, it is uncomfortable, but the 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 learning and the outcomes that are brought about from that uh, are just so rewarding. Yeah, most yeah. definitely. Well, it's an honor to have you, Jess, uh, and I really enjoy our chat. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're totally welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you.